Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Since NASCAR was officially incorporated on February 21st, 1948, a total of 3,015 races have been completed in the prestigious Cup Series. Throughout that time, a huge amount of trivial facts have come to light about the sport that we all love and enjoy following week to week. It's hard to believe NASCAR is now in its 74th season of operation. The idea of stock car racing began as a Sunday afternoon pastime of seeing which car had the most horsepower and which driver could perform best on dirt tracks cut from cow pastures and unused farm fields and now is one of the most popular sports on the planet. And I think NASCAR began with a couple of dozen family cars going around in circles on a makeshift oval in downtown Charlotte on June 19, 1949. No one had any idea what the sport would develop into over the next seven decades of racing. By the way, it sure has been a lot of fun to watch. It's pretty amazing to go back and look at just how many interesting facts have surfaced pertaining to the stars that have made NASCAR's Cup Series so famous. What's so amazing is that those that have made NASCAR's Premier Series so great didn't set out to make all those interesting tidbits of history happen. As the old saying goes, sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. Those interesting little trivial stories sweeten a pie that's already filled with wonderful stories of success on super speedways and short tracks that dot the country and serve as our favorite places to see stock car racing unfold. Personalities, oh yeah, we've seen them all. From the quiet ones to the loud ones to the ones that would do well in the spotlight as comedians on the Las Vegas Strip. Those untold stories trapped in time sure are fun to tell with family and friends sitting on the edges of their seats. So when that game show host comes calling with obscure trivia questions about NASCAR in exchange for some big prize, you'll be ready to go. In a world where some things are rather unpredictable or predictable, such as gas prices going up, stock market going down, and summer heat just around the corner, you can sit back and say, wow, I didn't know that, as you listen to this edition of A Lifetime in NASCAR. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 63 of A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White, and we have got... This is one of those shows that you just you you, just, you can't imagine the fun we're going to have with this show. Not only us as the host, but you as the listener. You're going to really enjoy this one. And Ben came up with the absolute best title for this show. I mean, obviously, we're called A Lifetime in the Ascar Podcast. But the show itself, in addition to being episode 63, 
We're going to call this, wow, I didn't know that. I mean, Ben has got some great, great stories, great analogies, and I think you're really, really going to enjoy this episode. And, you know, we cover all kinds of different topics that we're going to be talking about. So, Ben, first of all, looking forward to doing this show as we always do every single week. And, you know, how did you come up with the idea? I mean, I mean, obviously, there were so many different um, things you could have drawn from this. But I mean, how did you come up with the wow, I didn't know that angle and all these different stories? Because you could probably come up with even uh, probably another hundred more if we if we had the time. But I mean, just a really good job that you came up with uh, with this. How did you come up with the concept of it? Well, it, it, I, I tell you what, Jerry, it's just, you know, you look through some of the, the history books and the record book and you just think, wow, there's so many of these little tidbit stories that I'm sure that I've some of these I had forgotten and come back across. And I know some of the fans that enjoy listening to the show and we appreciate everyone tuning in and listening to what we, we do each week. And I thought these would be a lot of fun mm-hmm. for you and I to discuss, but also I'm sure there's people that that really maybe have not come across some of these. And, and this is one of these fun shows that you and I would have so much fun, I guess, to just to talk about these little tidbit things that, that have come across throughout NASCAR history that and then you say, wow, I did not know that. And that's, that's what we've called today's show. And, and just things, like I say, you look back and you think uh, some of these things that I've seen personally happen throughout my gosh, uh, 50 years of being involved in NASCAR and 39 years as a writer in NASCAR. But a lot of these things I've seen happen myself, and we just wanted to share them with you. This this is going to be a blast. It's going to be a lot of fun to, to share these. Exactly. And, and we're going to have, you know, fans are going to come away from this learning a lot more about NASCAR's history. I mean, it almost seems, and I've said this many times over the years, is that the more you learn about NASCAR's history, the more there is to learn. I mean, it, it's just mm-hmm. such a colorful and rich tradition. So many different stories, so many different drivers, crew chiefs, you know, crew members, team owners, PR people for that matter. I mean, we had uh, Tom Roberts on, uh, Alan Kalicki's uh, former PR person uh, a few weeks back. So, I mean, you know, this is just uh, another extension of the very rich, the very colorful, the very beautiful tapestry that NASCAR history uh, has. I bet you could never think of putting the word tapestry and NASCAR in the same sentence. I just did it. (laughs) Yes, you did. That's pretty cool. That's a nice little segue into it. That's great. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we've got so many different ways we can and directions we can go with this. So I guess the the best place to start with is start at the beginning, I guess, you know, in in a sense, let's talk about, you know, the first pole position winner, the first uh, race winner, all that kind of stuff. Let's let what what, I'm going to let you be the maestro. I'm going to be the or you're the conductor and I'm in maestro. I'm going to be the uh, the first chair violinist playing here. So it's all yours, sir. (laughs) All right. Well, let's go to the very beginning. Of course, 1949, June 19th of that year was when NASCAR held its first strictly stock race. And it happened in Charlotte, North Carolina, not Charlotte Motor Speedway, but a small dirt track in what was then, I guess, still downtown Charlotte. And uh, the pole position winner, a lot of people say, well, who won the pole? Well, that went to Bob Flock, and uh, he was driving a 1946 Hudson. Uh, I guess I want to say Hornet. I've got a, actually I've got a painting uh, by Dan McCrary of uh, uh, Herb Thomas and Marshall Teague actually hanging here in my office. And uh, but that's that's the car that actually the type of car that won the first poll. 
And then a gentleman by the name of Jim Roper won that first race in a Lincoln. It was supposed to go to Glenn Dunaway and uh, he was flagged the winner, but he didn't win the race because he had illegal leaf springs on the bottom of the rear end of his car. And it was strictly stock and he couldn't run those that year. So the first pole position winner, if anybody asks you, is uh, Bob Flock. He he got the uh, honors of winning the first pole in NASCAR history. And that was many, many decades ago. What, 74 years ago? Yep. Well, you know, I, I can't help but interject. I mean, you know me, I'm kind of the guy that's the, when I look at a glass, it's usually half empty rather than half full, but I've got, I got to interject this because it just came to me. You were talking about, you know, Glenn Dunaway was disqualified for the Leaf Springs. So, you know, we had the episode a few weeks ago about uh, cheating in NASCAR. Mm -hmm. So the first ever race in NASCAR, we had a cheat. Well, okay. I won't call him the cheater. Let's just say he pushed the envelope a little bit too much. It was against the rules and, and uh, he gets disqualified. I mean, that, kind of set the tone for the next 74 75 years yeah. if you will yeah it sure did and you know they were looking in those days as we said of that in that uh innovative uh show i guess is the way to put it right those <laughs> those guys even back then they were looking for ways uh, advantages to get to the front and advantages to win races and it started at the very first one and uh you know it's that's just the way these guys were thinking not exactly what was uh what they what was on the sheet, but how do we get around? And, and I, when I say sheet, I wasn't looking at saying rule book. I was looking at look saying rule sheet because mm-hmm. back in those days, that's all that they really had uh, because uh, you're running a strictly stock car. And they came, as we said, then it came out of the driveway and you painted the number on the sides with white shoe polish uh, because you had to pray to the good Lord above that nothing happened to the car because you had to take it back home to the wife and maybe the wife didn't know about it. And <laughs> I'm going to borrow the car for the afternoon, honey. Okay. And then hope nothing happened to it. Cause you had to put it back in the garage and wash it on the way home at, at a friend's house. And that's really what stock car racing was in those days. It was strictly stock cars and you couldn't do anything to them other than tape up the headlights. Hope you didn't break them and uh, make sure the doors stay closed you change the oil and uh you put some gas in it according to seven-time champion richard petty that's all you could do to them in those days and pray 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 that you didn't do anything to scratch them or flip them and ironically the the time the the petties lee petty his dad did flip a car in that very first race and it was borrowed from someone else yep and uh that didn't go over very well not sure how he explained his way out of that (laughs) But uh, didn't go too well for the Petty family, and they had to hitchhike back home to, to Level Cross right outside of Greensboro, North Carolina. And that was the way their racing career started. Fortunately, it worked out way better. They had 10 championships and 268 wins for Petty Enterprises as time went on, but uh, didn't start out very well. Exactly. And, you know, the one thing that I was wondering about is, you know, back in the day, there was just, you know, it was such a, you know, it was a new sport, obviously. And like mm-hmm. you said, instead of a rule book, we had a rule sheet, which I, I find that really yeah. interesting. But, you know, you got to give a lot of credit to not only NASCAR, but all the people that made up NASCAR, because, you know, this was totally uncharted territory. I mean, yes, there was some racing prior to NASCAR, especially dirt track racing, grassroots racing, you know, in the, into the 30s and you know, the 40s. There was, you know, obviously they started racing the beaches and all that kind of thing. 
But you got to give a lot of credit to the the pioneers of the sport. You know, the the guys that got behind the wheel of the family car. Hey, honey, I'm going to go out for a Sunday drive. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to tell you I'm going out. You know, <laughs> and putting a, a number on the side of the car. I'm going to, mm-hmm. and then, you know, if I get a if I get fifty bucks to win, it's my money, honey. It's my mad money, not yours. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And when they said Sunday drive, it really was a Sunday drive. Right. And uh, I mean, yeah. And to put it into context, you're le- you're out there with, oh, I don't know, 30 of your f- best friends. <laughs> and you're just hoping, like I said, and praying that something didn't happen to it. Because think about this. You you know, I, could, I can't imagine. My wife has a, a really nice red Chevrolet Impala. Mm-hmm. And my job, one of my jobs on the honeydew list is to make sure it's clean and got gas and oil and all that. And she's pretty particular about it, <laughs> as most wives would be. Right. And I conversation when I bring it back and it's, you know, just a ding. I mean, how do I explain? Wow. What do I say? You know, so if you're out there at 80, 90 miles an hour on the dirt track and it's pretty dirty and you're beating and banging with some guy for a very minimal amount of money in those days. They didn't really have the money. And, oh, here's another part of that chapter. Let's just hope you did get paid. A lot of those promoters back in those days would take the money and about lap 25 or 30, he might be, he might cut a trail. Seriously. He might be gone. <laughs> and the guys would come back in and after being hot and sweaty and beat their cars up. So, okay, I'm ready for my payday. He's like, where's the guy with the money? He's like, he's down, he's down 20, 30, 40 miles away. He's gone. And that's part of the reasons Bill France senior started NASCAR to, to make sure that the guys did get paid. Cause that happened a lot before NASCAR was officially formed. There were several sanctions, so-called sanctions around and the carnival type guys who would, you know, I want, I don't want to use the word fly by nights, but some of those guys would organize races. And then when it come time to be paid, there was nobody there to get money from. So that it got to the point where the guys who held the money were standing beside two guys with a handgun <laughs> strapped to their sides to make sure that I, the guy didn't take off really seriously. Right. And uh, that was their job to make sure that there was money in the till or money in the briefcase, uh, if you will, at the time the checker flag fell. That was kind of routine. And that was one of the main reasons Bill France started the Streamline Hotel uh, meeting down in Daytona with all the mechanics and the moonshiners and the farmers and all those guys who got together to say, look, we don't we're tired of being shafted at the end of these races. We want somebody to organize this and make it a, a somewhat professional sport that started off as a, a, a regional type sport that grew into a national sport, but that was the main hiccup. That was the main thing they met about is like, we want somebody to, to hold the money and make sure, because we're putting everything on the line here and we want to make sure somebody's there to pay us off at the end of the end of these races. Well, I, I got to ask you, you raise a good point. So, you know, obviously neither one of us was around back in the late 40s, mid to late 40s, and, you know, when, when, before NASCAR uh, began. But if you had a guy who promoted a race and he was the guy that had the money and then he takes off, how, as a driver, could they, you know, how could the drivers themselves justify getting burned once? And then maybe going to another race where the same 
excuse me, same promoter, quote unquote, uh, was, you know, collecting the money for that. It was supposed to pay out and then he would not show. I mean, because it, it, I read somewhere, and this is several years ago, I read something that there were guys who would not pay the the prizes and they would you know they would take off and like you were saying they you know they'd be 20 30 40 miles down the road before the race would be over with yeah but there were a lot of those guys that did that on a regular basis we're not i mean there were sure there were some one-offs that you know just disappeared in the night never were seen from before you know seen uh, again but how could how did the drivers back then i mean was it just that the fact that it was essentially the only show in town that they had to take a chance and hope that they would get paid. And then, you know, the guy takes off again. I mean, it's, it was almost like a vicious circle. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was. And I think the guys who took off the first time were, would be pretty brave to show up again, really, because I mean, not only would they want to get paid for that race, they'd want to get paid for the one they didn't, they got shafted on the week before, but I think they'd be pretty brave to show up again because these, this was a rough group of guys mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I, we've heard the stories of, you know, the guy would pick up the, the, the crowbar and yep. the next guy that he was facing pulled out the handgun and said, what are you going to do with that crowbar? And the guy would say, I'm just looking for a place to put it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> those deals, because it's like, this was a rough crowd. Okay. This, these, you know, not like today, the, these initial guys were, were, were pretty, pretty tough group of guys to hang out with. And, uh, yeah, it's, I wouldn't want to be the guy I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to show up as a promoter next week after I'd shafted this bunch the week before he best thing for him to do is just keep going right? because no, no, they, you know, and that's, that's the one thing they needed to solve. And, and that's what they did in 49 when they only had like eight races, I think for, for 1949, of course, Red Byron was the champion, uh, of those eight races. And he did great because, uh, you know, he was a great racer and served his time in world war II, And then after world war II, uh, started racing. I think he raced a little bit before world war II, but you know, that's what bill France brought to the table. It's like, I just want to organize this to where you guys aren't facing this week to week. And, and red Byron made a great champion. Did, did when, before bill or uh, bill France senior, uh, you know, brought everybody together to organize and form NASCAR. Didn't he have a, um, a history where he himself promoted races or am I wrong about that? Uh, yeah, actually he did. And he, he actually drove races too. He was, yeah, he was from Washington, DC. And I don't, I'm pretty sure this is a true story, but I mean, he, he left Washington to DC and, went down, uh, continued south and continued south and, and did, loved the Daytona area and started his own uh, uh, filling station or, you know, worked on cars. And, but he raced on the beach himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as fate would have it, he, you know, he got to, that's where he decided to, to start uh, promoting some races. And that's why everything sort of ended up in Daytona Beach. I mean, he just loved the area. And you know, of course, the, the beach offered a place for racing to happen. Obviously, the the town city council and all didn't want them to race on the streets, and there was mm-hmm. nowhere else to race. Right. But the beach was kind of fair game. And, they, of course, they've been doing speed trials and things on the beach uh, since the, the early 30s anyway. And, it, you know, it's not in circles, but straight line type speed trials. And so that was the perfect place to uh, to race. And then... 
he was granted permission to use A1A, the asphalt of, of that highway, as part of the racing surface. And then they just made a circle, part of it being the beach, part of it being the A1A. And uh, so, and that the rest, as I say, is history. He spent about 10 years trying to get enough uh, funding to build uh, in Daytona International Speedway. And it finally opened in 1959, but that was a long-term venture to try to get funding for it. And, uh, but it all started there on the Daytona beach on, right, on right. the sand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ben, you know, you had mentioned a few moments ago about red Byron and he is also on our list of, you know, guys that really bring something to the table that, you know, uh, a lot of fans, you know, wow, I didn't know that. Tell us about red Byron. Cause he has a very interesting story about um, not so much on the racetrack, but how he got behind the wheel of a car, how he manipulated himself in the car, the really interesting story about Red Byron. Tell us about that. Sure, sure. Well, he was born in Washington County, Virginia. He moved to Colorado, and then he moved uh, south uh, to Anniston, Alabama, which is right there, ironically, very close to Talladega Super Speedway. Mm -hmm. uh, he began racing in 1932. Uh, one of those types, like I said, there's a lot of sanctions of racing. Actually, not really sanctions, just guys out racing in circles and cow pastures and that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, he was one of the people, ironically, he was in that, uh, streamline hotel meeting down in Daytona beach. Again, the farmers, the moonshiners, the mechanics, the guys that loved racing, even some motorcycle racers were involved in that meeting. And, uh, so he was there, uh, for that meeting, uh, in 1947 to back up a little bit though, he had served, uh, in, in his country in the war mm -hmm. of world war two. And he suffered some serious injuries to his left leg, but, uh, he still loved to be part of racing. So he wanted to be a part of uh, NASCAR. And so he hooked up with Raymond parks. who was a familiar, very successful and familiar uh, team owner. Uh, and a lot of people have sort of compared Raymond parks to, uh, say the modern day Rick Hendrick. He, Raymond Parks was a moonshiner, but he also brought three, four cars uh, to all the races. So, uh, and, and uh, Red Byron was one of his drivers that was racing very early in the game. And of course, in 1949, the first season NASCAR was, uh, was in business. And so, but he had problems with this left leg throughout the remainder of his life. So his crew put together a leg brace to where he was able to shift the car, push in the, the, the clutch pedal. Had he not had that brace, he would not be able to race. So they come up with this leg brace. So he was, um, he was handicapped in that regard that he was having a problem with that, but they fixed the brace where he could race. And so, uh, he was very successful, successful behind the wheel. Uh, of race race cars and he only raced just a couple of seasons but he was crowned nascar's very first nascar champion and uh after he retired from driving i think in 1951 then he got into other ventures uh as far as you know being but behind the scenes i want to say mm -hmm. and uh you know worked with various drivers uh, helping them as far as sports car racing and such as that. And he passed away in 1960 of a heart attack, but 
just a gentleman uh, racer and a lot of respect uh, from other racers as far as his ability on the racetrack. But yeah, he was uh, crowned NASCAR's first champion, but he did it by, uh, you know, overcoming this rather severe leg injury. And by using that brace, he was able to, to be successful on the racetrack. I mean, he obviously was an inspiration to, you know, regular, you know, fans as well as those who had physical impairment. Um, I'm, I'm curious, did, you know, when, when things first started for, you know, for Red, when he started racing with the leg brace, and I, you may not even know this because obviously this, this <clears throat> excuse me, this is before both our time, but was the fact that he needed uh, assistance with that brace to allow him to use the clutch. Um, did that go over okay with his competitors or, you know, were there other guys that said, well, maybe, you know, I mean, I, again, I'm looking at this glass as a half empty thing here, but I mean, was there any concern that some people might've, you know, in, in their thoughts say that it was an unfair advantage that he had that, I mean, or was it pretty, pretty accepted that he, you know, it was okay for him to have it because it was allowing him to race. I believe they were very accepting of that. that okay. I, I think admired him for being able to do it because I think, I don't think it really had anything to do with his, um, any advantage. I just think the fact that it just gave his leg a little more strength to where he could push it, uh, push the clutch pedal in because back in those days, those, those clutch pedals if were pretty hard to push. If you, if you think of farm trucks and that, mm-hmm. of that nature, you know, back in that era, those, you know, I remember my grandfather's pickup was pretty, pretty hard to push the clutch pedal on. And that's all it was. It was just trying to add strength to his left leg to where he could push it in. And, and who knows, I mean, he might've even used uh, maybe a stick or something like that to help push it. I mean, those mm-hmm. he, yeah, but as far as his driving ability, once he got the thing up to the gear he needed, he was, it was all him. And, just a great racer for sure. He, and did an awesome job behind the wheel for sure. Right. Let's move on to our next category. And I'm going to preface this with a line from one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, the movie was 48 hours with Nick, Nick Nolte and, and Eddie Murphy. And there's a scene right near the end where um, Eddie Murphy says, or I'm sorry, Nick Nolte says to Eddie Murphy, he says, I need to you know, borrow some money from you because I need to get a new car. And um, uh, Eddie Murphy says, well, what kind of car are you going to get? And Nick Nolte says, a convertible, ragtop. I'm a ragtop man. And that's kind of <laughs> leads us into this convertible division that NASCAR used to have. A lot of people don't really uh, know about this convertible division, but it was a very popular division way back in the early uh, era of NASCAR. And uh, there were a lot of ragtop cars there. <laughs> then, you know, yeah. So tell us about that, too. Well, sure will, Jerry. And you know what? The the convertible era was really big in the in the late 1950s. And so of course NASCAR wanted to capitalize on that. So ironically, the spring event in Darlington actually was began with a con, the convertible division. And then the first race they had was May 11th, 1957. And it was the Rebel 400 that was the spring event for many years. Uh, but it started off in, with convertibles. And if you can imagine going around Darlington Raceway, 1.366 mile racetrack as we uh, we have today, same track, but it's convertibles. And it's like, how could they possibly run convertibles there? Well, of course, they had roll bars uh, in the cars, but the, the fans sitting 
and on the front stretch and back stretch, of course, could see the drivers inside the race cars, which was appealing to them. And, uh, but these, when you're talking about 57, uh, style cars, you're talking about the bigger, uh, the Chevys and the uh, Fords and I mean, the big, what I call the, well, what my wife calls the motorhome era. And those are the really big wide finned type cars back in those days, but they actually did run, uh, convertibles, uh, in those races. And in 1956, Bob Welburn was the champion 1957. He actually won it again. In 1958, Bob Wilmer won it again. So he's a three-time multi-champion in that division. And then 1959, Joe Lee Johnson was the champion. You say to yourself, well, where have I heard the name Joe Lee Johnson? Well, actually, he won the very first World 600 at Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, in 1960. And so he was from Tennessee, and I think he won one other race uh, in his career. I think it was a short track in Tennessee. And that's the only two races that Joe Lee Johnson won, but he was the 1959 uh, convertible champion in NASCAR. But yeah, there was a, a division called the convertible division in NASCAR. And like we see in the truck series and Xfinity series and the cup series, well, there was a convertible division. And a lot of people may not have realized that. All right. Well, you mentioned about Joe Lee Johnson, and that's going to lead me into my next question here, because the next item we have on our agenda, we're talking about Junior Johnson. Was Joe Lee Junior Johnson's cousin? Because I know that's that's a, there's a story about that as well, too, about um, Junior Johnson. <laughs> and I'll, I'll leave you to okay. I'll, I'll leave you to explain this one, because I don't even know how to, even to begin how to say this one. <laughs> OK, well, no, actually, Joe Lee Johnson and Junior Johnson were not related. We're not, okay, so, OK, OK, OK. No, Joe Lee Johnson is from was from Tennessee. And of course, Junior Johnson from Wilkes County, North Carolina, no, no relation between the two. Okay. Okay. But the, the story of the outhouse, let me see if I can get into this one. This, this happened. I got this from the late Tom Higgins who worked for the Charlotte observer for many years, first the Charlotte news and then Charlotte observer. But Tom told me this before his passing. And, and I, I still laugh about this one. Junior was actually racing at North Wilkesboro Speedway and he was leading the race. And he had this cousin that was in a car well back. He was several laps down and the local Wilkes County Sheriff's department had gotten wind that this particular cousin of juniors was racing that Sunday. And they had a warrant out for his arrest because of moonshining. <laughs> well, no big surprise. So they find out that he's in the race and the, as the story goes, they, this is their way of arresting him. Cause they, they finally found him. They've been looking for him for months and months and they never could pinpoint him, but he's in car number 52 or 53, whatever. So they basically stake out the racetrack, knowing that at some point, either one of two things is going to happen. He's either going to finish the race or he's going to fall out of the race. And at some point he's got to get out of the car. Right. So they, he continues to, you know, race in the race. He comes in for a pit stop and they say, well, Joe or John or whatever his name is. And said, well, the Wilkes County Sheriff's Department is looking for you. <laughs> so and they've got everything staked out waiting for you to either crash, blow an engine, fall out, whatever. So, okay. So he's like, hmm, what do I do next? Well, he continues racing until finally the car does blow up. So he gets out of the car 
And during a caution flag, he decides, well, my best bet is to, you know, cross the track and run, run as fast as I can. <laughs> well, of course, he knows that they're staking him out. So he said, well, the only hope I have is to cross the track and go up the hill. And, and the only thing he sees is an outhouse. So he goes into this little wooden outhouse and he doesn't realize that, well, there's, they're going to, you know, I guess that's the best way they're going to catch him. So they ended up tearing him down the outhouse and they put the handcuffs on him and take him to jail. <laughs> but this is all true. I can't make this stuff up. So, you know, I mean, I, if it were me, I would have not gone for the outhouse, maybe the cornfield, but you know, this, so junior, I guess, continues on. Maybe he won the race, but this was one of junior's cousins. And, uh, you know, they, the best way to catch a moonshiner maybe is to catch him after he falls out of a race. I, you know, but this happened sometime in the mid fifties. So the moral of the story is if you're a moonshiner, don't go to the outhouse. That's all I can say. <laughs> all I can say is that was one crappy end result for this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> good, good comeback. Couldn't, I couldn't avoid that one. <laughs> good comeback. I'll never give my day job though, but it, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm here. Yeah. I'll be here for the rest of the week on Saturday night, you know, all the way up to Saturday night. <laughs> tip, tip your waiters and waitresses. This is exactly true. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm curious. Was uh, we, we don't, we don't know what junior Johnson's cousin's name was. I mean, did he have any, no, he didn't. Okay. No, so, I asked, I asked Tom that and he said, I don't honestly know the name. It might've been Johnson. <laughs> I don't know, but he, he, he does remember this story. He was, this, this may have happened in the late fifties. He said he was covering the race and he remembered, you know, the, you know, the hoopla going on behind the main grandstand and all these, right. you know, <coughs> sheriff's deputies converging on the outhouse and everybody's like, what's going on in the outhouse. But that's what it was. They were trying to, they'd been looking for this guy forever. And he kept, I guess he was as good a driver as junior because they could never catch him on the highway. Right. And the old ways that, well, we, they, like I said, they had gotten wind that the guy was, uh, <laughs> you know, going to be racing in the race. And, and, uh, you know, and there, I, I do, I, I'll add this one too. I do remember there was a driver. I don't want to use a name, but there was a driver that at Darlington where, he was practice practicing for the race and the sheriff's deputy showed up to serve papers on this particular driver for some type of divorce settlement. Oh, I've heard this story. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. yeah. And, and the crew chief radioed to him and said, you can't pit, you can't come in because the sheriff's <laughs> here to serve you papers for your divorce. So he stayed out on the racetrack as long as he could. And then if I'm telling it correctly, he pulled into one of the turns and, and, uh, you know, scaled the bank, uh, went up the, the turn and jumped, you know, the guardrail and left that way. I mean, he, he raced as long as he could till he ran out of fuel, I think, and then went up the bank. He didn't want to be served papers for his divorce. That's the way I understand the story. Right. right. This happened in the early seventies. Right. 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 So can't make that one up either. Can't that's, make that one up. That's right. Or as, that's as, a, we, as you like to say, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> Well, that's another crappy ending too, I guess. You know, for that guy, you have to run, it, yeah. run off the off the racetrack just to avoid the paperwork. You know, you know, park park your park your car after you run out of fuel and run up the turn and scale the fence. You know, that's exactly <laughs> exactly exactly. Well, yeah. you know, you know, we talked about convertibles, and this is kind of in that same <clears throat> um, realm, I guess you might say. 
But, you know, we also had a interesting story about a vinyl top in NASCAR, the only yes. vinyl top car in NASCAR type. Yeah, let's try it again. The only vinyl top car in NASCAR. Try to say that fast three times. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about that one. Okay, two, uh, two different stories here that I've been told. One by Dale Inman, one by Richard Petty. This happened in the 1968 Daytona 500, a few couple of days or three, maybe a week beforehand. Let's, let's call it three days before, before. All right, Dale Inman has told me that they, and the number 43 Plymouth, that he remembers it, that a crew member was doing something to the top of the car about three days before they were ready to go and messed up the top so badly that they needed to do, that it was too late to paint, repaint the top. And mm. it was just, they're ready to load the car and go south to Daytona. So the way to fix it in a hurry was to put a vinyl top on it. And when they got to Daytona, all the other teams were like, oh my Lord, what have they done? What have they found? The big secret, you know, they've done something to make the car go faster. Well, that wasn't really the truth. The truth was they just messed up the top and they need a quick way to fix it. Now, Richard's version of the story that he recently was that, you know, okay, if you look at a golf ball and it's got the little pivot holes in the golf ball, mm -hmm. it makes the, the ball go straight. And by doing that, it maybe, you know, condenses. I'm not a golfer, so I might do a really horrible job of explaining this. But it makes the, the ball go straight and it go, glides through the air better and all that jazz. So by putting a vinyl top on it with all the little pivot, divot holes, whatever in it, that that might help the car get better gas mileage, perform better, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that's why they put the vinyl top on it for the 68 Daytona 500. The problem was that as the race progressed, that the the glue that was holding the top down started to come up at right at the top of the windshield. And so there are photos that you might find on online that you see Richard out of the car doing a pit stop and he's on the hood beating down the vinyl top with a hammer and try and the chrome and they tried taping it and it finally just kept flapping so bad it basically put them out of the race. Mm -hmm. But that was the two versions that I've heard, but that's the only time in NASCAR history that I know of that a vinyl top was ever used in a, in a NASCAR cup series race. Uh, I don't know of any other time. Uh, and I don't know when vinyl tops were started to be put on cars. I don't think it was done in the fifties and all that, you know, or, you know, as a, as a passenger car. But that's as far as a full-blown built NASCAR Cup Series car. That's the only time it was ever used. So, correct me if I'm wrong. I've heard this story before, and I I've heard both you know the Inman and uh, Richard Petty versions. Correct me if I'm wrong though. Didn't NASCAR almost like within a week or maybe even a few days afterwards, didn't they outlaw the vinyl top too as well? Um, oh yeah. <laughs> <I'm pretty laughs> sure. Yeah. Normally what NASCAR does is once you do it, then they outlaw it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they don't normally outlaw it before you do it. It's not always do it. And then, you know, within 24 to 48 hours outlaw it. And yeah, but, and it didn't work well because like I said, it started coming up pretty badly and they put duct tape over it and it didn't hold and it was, it, it didn't work well at all. 
but everybody was kind of shaking in their shoes thinking, Oh my Lord, what are they found in love across? What is what the right. enterprise has done? Because they thought it was going to be a huge advantage. As it turned out, it was disastrous because it just, <laughs> it just kept flapping and flapping and flapping at 200 miles an hour. You might could do it at 55 miles an hour and be okay. But at 200 miles an hour, it just didn't work out. And, and there, again, those photos you'll see, you might find it online. You see Richard, you know, up there just trying his best to beat the chrome back down on it, but hold it any way they could. And it didn't, it didn't pan out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm going to go now to the next topic and, you know, wow, I didn't know that either. Although I, I kind of knew this one a little bit. Um, in 1975, the biggest country song of the year, and I, I you know, forgive me because I don't remember if this came out before or after what we're going to talk about. The biggest country song of the year was Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn mm -hmm. Campbell. I just looked yeah. it up. And someone told me this. Oh, this was early on. And when I first started covering NASCAR, this might have been like in the late 90s, I think it was, that there apparently that was either the inspiration or something that led to probably the one of the most um <laughs> another crappy story i guess no, i'm just kidding i'm just kidding but uh, let's let's put it this way these uh, several well-known drivers decided to try their luck at something a little bit out of their their realm and it may have been successful from a fan perspective and popularity standpoint but if you gave it a listen, eh, maybe not so much. Tell us about that story. This, okay. this is a good one. This is a real All right. Good. This is another one of those falls in the category of I cannot make this up. Exactly. All right. This There was an album put out by, um, well, actually, it was it was put out by, um, hmm, I'm trying to see what this is. It was called NASCAR Goes Country. Right. It was a right. country music uh, cover album. Original originally released in 1975 by MCA Records, and it featured none other than Bobby Allison, David Pearson, Richard Petty, Buddy Baker, Daryl Waltrip, and Cale Yarborough. Singing songs, not turning left, not shifting gears, not talking to the crew chiefs on the radio, but singing songs. And these were the titles, for instance, 99 Beers on the Wall, <laughs> sung by Richard Petty, Pearson, Kelly Arbor, Bobby, and Buddy Baker. Right. They also tuned into that one. There was another song called Hey, Good Looking, sung by Kale Yarborough. Uh, Six Days on the Road, sung by Kale. Let the Good Times Roll, Richard Petty. Watch out for the Matador, of course. Bobby Allison, he was driving the Matador. Butterbeans, that was the name of one song by Buddy Baker. <laughs> When the Saints Go Marching In, that was done by all those fine gentlemen. Maybelline was sung by David Pearson. I Can Help by Darrell Waltrip. Big Daddy, Bobby Allison. And King of the Road, of course, Richard Petty. Yep. Now, this was an album uh, that, again, brought out in 1975. It was re-released, I believe, in 2002. And the Jordanaires, a group, contributed to additional background vocals. I did not make this up. Um, I guess they did pretty good. I remember I was uh, about 15 years old at the time when it came out. And I, as I would do today, I said, then what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I think it was okay. I remember listening to it. It was all right. They did good. I'm, you know, I mean, I just, you know, it was okay. Well, you know, we were talking about this before we started taping the show today. And I remembered there was another album and I finally found it. As you were talking, I finally found it. there was a second NASCAR themed uh, album. Okay. And, and these, these songs were not covers. These were actually songs written about racing and it was called let's see here i just lost it here stock car racing's entertainers of the year that's the name of the album came mm -hmm. out in 83 country and western uh, style music of course it had 22 songs by dale earnhardt okay bill, bill elliott kelly yarborough ned jarrett rusty wallace and bobby allison among others now check out some of the titles of these things kyle petty sang the people who love me worry a lot Okay. All right. Kyle's a pretty good singer. Well, that's yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I'll give him that. Yeah. Then, uh, then Bill Elliott had crazy racing man. Dale Jarrett had racetrack fever. The late Ron Bouchard had super speedway man. Uh, Kale Yarborough had the winner quite appropriate and Dale Earnhardt. Now you would think they was somebody would have written a song called the intimidator. Well, mm -hmm. this was close enough. It was called hard charger. Okay. So, and, there, and apparently this is like a huge collector's item from what I'm reading here, and you can't find it anywhere. But uh, so, I mean, you know, these guys, you know, they, they were trying to capitalize. There was, you know, an era, you know, all kidding aside, the 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, where country music really reigned supreme. I, I always like to say there was the glory days of country music. And, you know, NASCAR, because it was so uh, closely linked with country music, that that's you know, it's not surprising they they try this once and then they tried it again. But, you know, I'll never forget the first time I ever interviewed Rusty Wallace was in the 2001 Daytona, I'm sorry, 2002 Daytona 500, rather. And, you know, we were talking about a, a bunch of different things. And I asked him, I said, well, how does NASCAR continue on, you know, because at that time it was really, you know, continuing to grow and really getting popular. I mean, it was, the, you know, the most popular motor, form of motorsport in the country. And he said that, he felt that NASCAR needed to get back to its country and Western uh, roots. He said that always was the kind of thing that really got more fans going. Like, and he would always talk about, you know, that, that if they would play like uh, country and Western songs on the PA, it would get people going. I mean, this is not a country and Western song, but it's kind of in the, along the same lines. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you play, you know, if you were at Talladega and you heard Leonard Skinner on the PA singing Sweet Home Alabama, the place would go up for grabs, you know. So oh, yeah. kind, of, kind of the same concept. Like if you were at Darlington or Charlotte or Daytona, I mean, you know, country in the West or Bristol, I mean, country in the Western reigns supreme. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, Ben, and you can probably um, uh, verify this, the country and Western um, genre also kind of led to Bristol establishing its tradition where uh, drivers would pick their songs to be introduced. Uh, typically, it was for the summer night race, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, I, th I think so. Yeah. And, and very early in Bristol's uh, history, you know, people like uh, Farron Young and, mm -hmm. and Patsy Klein and those types of entertainers would come to the racetrack and, and do pre-race concerts and things like that in 61, 62, which I think would have been awesome to, to hear Patsy Klein. Yeah, uh, that would have been awesome to go and, and listen to those concerts. And so, yeah, that was that was part of their history. Yeah. And so I'm sure that was where where some of that came from. Sure. OK, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to try to stump the master here. OK, you okay. ready? Yeah. 
Name me the country music superstar who was also a NASCAR driver. Oh, yeah. Well, I know Marty Robbins. Yeah, you got it. That was too, that was too easy. <laughs> that was too easy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, you know, talking about singing, I want to I take my hat off to each one of these drivers who did it because, uh, all right, here's another one. You remember Andy Griffith's show, of course? Yes, of course. All right. And you remember there was an episode where Barney was wanting so badly to be the lead of this like church choir thing. And he could, he's like me, he couldn't hold a tune in the bucket. <laughs> all right. So they kept, Andy kept saying, go to the microphone and he would sing and he, he kept doing his hands like lower, lower, lower. And what they were doing, they were turning the microphone off lower and lower and lower. <laughs> and finally he kept singing, singing like until the mic was totally off. Right. And it's like, you got it. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that's what it would be with me and they had so when it came time to sing during the concert they had this guy with a deep bar baritone voice in the back and he was singing and barney was mouthing and singing but the microphones all felt on the stage well see that's the way i would sing <laughs> and that's what i would need and so i i i take my hat off to all kale and daryl and bobby and david and all those guys because i I admire him for doing it because I absolutely cannot sing a note. And so congrats to all of them for even getting out there and even trying to do an album. Because That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm the Barney Fife type that I need the microphone completely off, you know, <laughs> when I, I, I just, it's the way it is. So congrats. Well, so to in all other them. words, in other words, if you and I were on the road somewhere and you're in the hotel room next to me, you won't be in the shower singing in other words, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I I'd probably be arrested for, you know, for something, for noise ordinances. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's let's move on to the next episode or next. Um, um, <laughs> I I, see, I got you so rattled. You know, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm stunned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's move on to the next uh, section, I guess, or segment. Um, and we again are talking about Junior Johnson. Tell me about this is really an interesting story. I mean, you know, it's 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 not so much how the race wound up but it was how they did what they did in such a short period of time tell us yeah, about the yeah. well this falls back into the category of what you said earlier about once you do it nascar makes you not do it anymore yeah. mm -hmm. okay august 1st 1976 the first year that uh kale yarborough won his first championship of three in a row junior johnson and associates the team that that Kale was driving for changed an engine at Pocono in 33 minutes, 10 seconds, and then they returned to the racetrack. Okay. And then two years later, October 8th, 1978 at Charlotte Motor Speedway, Yarborough blew another engine at, at the during that race. It was the October race there. And they got really good at doing engine changes. They went from 33 minutes, 10 seconds at the Pocono race two years earlier to changing an engine in 13 minutes uh, and they finished 22nd and they were 23 laps down. But I can think about what I'm saying. They changed an engine. He went to the garage, changed the engine in 13 minutes, and then he was back out on the racetrack and 23 laps down. But anyway, he, he finished uh, uh, 22nd that day, but he won his third consecutive uh, championship, mm -hmm. Winston Cup championship. 
And, and I realized that the cars in those days did not have all of what these cars of today have, but the, and this is a hot engine too, by the way, and that's why most mechanics, when you take your car to get some work done on it, they'll say, well, leave it with us and we'll have it for you in a couple of days or whatever the case may be, because mm -hmm. they don't want to work on a hot engine. Right. This is a, a high horsepower car that had just come off the racetrack doing what 170 some miles an hour pulls in the garage the 10 guys eight guys get it under it over it jack it up pull this hot 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 motor out stick another motor and transmission in it in 13 minutes can you I'm imagine good. and I'm then good. a day or two or three after that nascar bands pulling engines out at racetracks you know because they felt like it it's an advantage that other teams don't have the personnel or the means to do it. And it's too much of an advantage for you guys. So we're not going to let you change engines anymore, but they went, they did, they improved over two years. They went from 33 minutes to 13 minutes. So that's impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. I mean, you cut 20 out, 20 minutes off the, the, the from the first time to the second time you're right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. But now keep in mind that on a race car, you don't have the air conditioning and you don't have a lot of the, you know, the comfort uh, things that you do on a regular passenger car and a race car still, mm -hmm. but it's impressive that you're able to take a motor out of a race car and put another motor transmission back in, in, in less than 15 minutes. That's pretty, pretty impressive. Exactly. That's almost like a, a crew chief. I mean, I'm sorry, a pit crew challenge, you know, within a race, you know, but, but, uh, but unfortunately, like you said, it was over eventually rule or um, over not overruled, but um, ruled out, if you will, by NASCAR. They they yeah. stood against the rules too. So yeah. All right, let's move on to the next topic of wow. I didn't know that, and this is really I, I did not know this. I mean, I I think there still is another instance somewhere in NASCAR history, uh, more recent instance. I think it was in the Xfinity series, but I can't think of it. But tell us about what happened on August seventh, nineteen seventy seven, at Talladega. Okay, there was uh, Donnie Allison is driving the Haas Ellington Chevrolet number one Hawaiian Tropic Chevrolet. He's uh, leading the race, and he told me himself. He said, "I had I came in for a pit stop, and they instead of handed me a cold soft drink, they handed me a hot one, but I drank <laughs> it anyway. And then I started feeling sick to my stomach. I didn't feel well, and well, you can put the rest of the visual." <laughs> Okay. In your mind. And, um, so he's radios back to Haas Ellington said, I'm sick. I don't feel well. I don't think I can make it the rest of the way. And it's like, I don't know how hot 130 degrees or something in the race car, hot day outside. It's gotta be 90 degrees. All right. So no worries. Well, Daryl Waltrip, who was driving the die guard Chevrolet had engine issues. The, Word gets out of the PA system, Darrell Waltrip, will you please report to the Haas Ellington pit? So he hears it. He goes over and he said, hey, we need your help. Donnie's not feeling well. We need you to relief drive for Donnie. Okay, no worries. So he goes back, changes out of his street clothes back into his driver's suit and gets his helmet. He crawls in on the next pit stop, gets in the number one car. Donnie gets out feeling really bad. And he drives the next 23 laps in Donnie's car. And he goes on to victory driving Donnie's car, which is not uncommon. I mean, you know, it had been done other times in NASCAR history, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. And 
So on August 7th, 1977, Daryl Waltrip drives Donnie's car to victory at Talladega, which is great. They're both Chevrolets. And then back in those days, it wasn't as picky. Maybe, you know, there'd been Chevy drivers who drove Fords to victory, that kind of thing. More so today, that's not really, you're not really to do that. In other words, Chevy drivers that help Chevy drivers mm-hmm. in today's scenario. Right. But the point is that was the last time in NASCAR history in the cup series that a driver uh, had relief driven for another driver and taken the car to victory lane. It hasn't happened since August 7th, 1977. So that's quite a run uh, in the cup series. Now we were talking about this off air to not sure if it's been done in Xfinity, but that's the last time it's been done in the cup series. Yeah, I did find it, it was um, Eric Almirello and Denny Hamlin in the Bush. Well, it was called the, then the Bush series. That was in Milwaukee. That was in 2006, I think it was, or seven. But that was the circumstances were a little bit different in that one. So, uh, you know, that one would not necessarily fall in this category. Basically, what it was is that Almirello was supposed to be drive the car and Denny overruled him and got in the car. And, and that was that was before the race started. Is that correct? exactly? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Right. So. Yeah, so this one is the last time a driver relieved another driver and went on to victory. Now, this is, you know, some people say, oh, well, Daryl got the win. Well, no, that's not the way the NASCAR rulebook reads. If a driver begins the race, uh, then the relief driver does not get the victory. It's the driver who starts the race that gets credited for the victory. So, Donnie, that goes to the Donnie's win category and not Daryl's win category. Does that just for the record? Does that surprise you though? I mean, that's what forty-five years ago. I guess it's been. Uh, does yeah, that surprise you? Kind of, kind of does. I mean, does it surprise you that we have not had that happen again? Because, I mean, you know, <clears throat> a relief driver in the course of a race has happened a number of times. I mean, you know, guys get sick or you know mm-hmm. what have you, but it it it's it kind of surprises me that that's the only win and we haven't seen that in you know in since then i mean you know we've seen, yeah. like i said we've seen the other guys replace the drivers but they've never gone into victory lane like in this instance but does that surprise you that we have not seen any more yeah it really really kind of has that's that's a long time to not uh to not have a, a driver go to victory lane for another driver yeah that's 45 years and i don't know i don't have the calculator in front of me but that um that's a long, long time to go. And you're right, because you'd think somebody would need help. And, and with all the good cars out there today, you'd think somebody would step in and, um, you know, and, and help somebody else take a car to victory. And it just hadn't happened. It's just kind of odd. But yeah, we've seen a lot of drivers uh, over the years step in for somebody else. And then maybe that driver might get back into the car later on. But yeah, it's it's a surprise, really. Forty-five years since that's happened. It's it's kind of strange. It is. All right. Next section we're going to talk about. Segment we're going to talk about, and this is really one of the most uh, unique oddities of NASCAR history, because well, I'm going to let Ben tell you the story, but this is really an interesting um, story because of how it happened and what exactly or what you know what transpired because. It's just, it's so unique. Ben, t- I'll let you, I'll let you have the floor and tell us a story about that one. Okay. Um, well, this is something we came up with, um, earlier today and I thought it was really interesting. The, 
a lot of people are Richard Petty fans. And of course, Richard Petty has driven the number 43 for the vast amount of his career, which mm -hmm. is 1,184 starts. He's won 200 races uh, over 32 years, seven championships, 200 victories, a seven-time winner of the Daytona 500. We know all that. And, of course, driving for Petty Enterprises, he has driven the number 41. He's driven uh, the 42. Uh, and actually, he drove the number 24 for one race, which is a number he really wanted early in his career. And on May 25th, 1986, he did not have a backup car at Charlotte Motor Speedway for the 600 that year. So he crashed in practice with the 43 cars. So ironically, he drove, but get this, DK Ulrich's Chevrolet. It was a lime green number six car. They put STP stickers all over it. And he drove the number six, which is very odd that they didn't have a backup car that year. He finished uh, 37th after having engine issues. Okay, that's very, very strange. He didn't mm -hmm. have a backup car, but ran across another little track fact for you that I didn't know. And I just learned this today, January 11th. I, let me say this. I think I, I ran across it before, but I've totally forgotten about it. January 11th, 1981. Kyle Petty drove the number 43 in one race and Richard Petty drove the number 42 in one race. So that was the year that both uh, father and son were running cars out of Petty Enterprises. And I thought, well, golly, I forgot all about that. Well, what was, what was going on there was that Richard was already on the winner's circle program as far as money from NASCAR. And he of course had won races and, Kyle was not. So the idea was they were going to Riverside, California. He thought, okay, if I could win in the 42, then I could get Kyle's car on the winter circle program in the 42. And I'm already on the winter circle program in the 43. That would put both cars on the winter circle program. Right. So I got a win in the 42 at Riverside. I won at Riverside many times. And so Kyle can get in the 43. I'll get in the 42. Everybody wins. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> right. But it was just kind of cool that Richard was in the 42 and Kyle was in the 43. So if anybody ever asks you, did, did Kyle Petty ever drive the 43 car? You can say yes. January 11th, 1981. I just thought that was a very interesting little track fact. And that's a great bar bet. If you go into a bar and you know, do you want to do trivia or anything, that would be one of the best ones because people would say, no, it never happened. Then they look it up and they go, oh yeah, you're right. No, no, no kidding about that. <laughs> so I ran across that one kind of by accident. I, I knew it, forgot it. And said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to put that one in there. Cause Hey, I just totally, totally slipped my mind. So there exactly. you go. Right. Gonna, we're going to, we got a couple more things we want to talk about. And, and uh, this is going to, I think this is going to be our last, I believe that, yeah, this is the last segment of the, wow, I didn't know that. And this is really, uh, you know, I alluded to a minute ago about, a very unique thing. We're talking about Cale Yarborough and uh, Benny Parsons uh, and the same pit crew. That, tell us about that story. I mean, how can two different teams have the same pit crew service their cars? I, I Obviously, you've got to have a pit strategy where, you know, the, the cars came in on different laps. But, I mean, yeah. is that the case? Or tell us about that story. Well, yeah, and, and this is very interesting. Also, Cale Yarborough uh, was driving for Junior Johnson, uh, and Benny Parsons was driving for a team under uh, LG DeWitt, 
mm-hmm. number 72 car, but they had the same sponsor sponsoring both cars, which is first national city travelers checks from city corp. And so here's the idea. They were racing all the way across the country at Riverside international raceway, same track as what we were just talking about with the petties. Right. But this is June 11th, 1978, just a few years prior to the 81. And so they're like, okay, it's a road course. Let's try this. So Benny Parsons wins the race that day, but he said, all right, we're, we're going to pit on different laps. So let's take one pit crew where we got the same uniforms. <laughs> we got the same bunch of guys. Let's, let's take seven guys or whatever that group was that they required, you know, for pit crews, you come out on these laps. We'll come in on these laps where we can save money by not having save thousands of dollars, but not sending two pit crews. Mm-hmm. We, even though we work for different teams, different located 200 miles from each other, let's do it this way and let's try it. Well, as it turned out, it worked out pretty good. I think Kale, finished in the top 10, I believe. And then Betty Parsons ends up winning the race. I don't know that that's ever been done like that before. Now it has happened with independent type teams. You know, the ones that were back marker teams, the James Hilton's and the JD McDuffie's and those types that knew they had no shot at winning a race. Uh, for many years, they would, they would do that kind of thing at, you know, oval track type races. Right. But I don't know that ever happening any time with top teams like Kale's team and like Benny's team and those types of things. So, and that was the third consecutive year that Kale won the championship. So there were top build teams doing it. And, but Benny wins the race. Kale finishes well in the top five or top 10. I mean, he was, he finished well that day. Mm-hmm. So both teams had the same pit crew. And I just thought that was very interesting to see that happen where you had both top running cars using only seven guys pitting two cars. Would that be, I mean, this raises so many questions in my mind, Ben. I mean, one, could they do that today if they needed to, uh, if, and I'm thinking more along the lines, not so much of independent teams doing it, but more, uh, you know, the, the top premier type level teams like um, Rick Hendrick Motorsports or, or um, uh, Joe Gibbs Racing, something like that. Could they potentially, you know, and, and maybe a road course would probably be the only place you could do yeah. that again. At, but I mean, could do you ever or could you ever foresee a team or an organization rather uh, bring out a pit crew that would service two different cars within that organization rather than having a, a you know, dedicated pit crew for every single car. Uh, I, I, I only way I could think that it would work, I believe Jerry would be on a road course like that, because I think what's going to happen, um, you would, you'd have to do it spread out like that, say a Watkins Glen or, uh, say, I don't know, um, maybe a Roval at Charlotte. So I don't know, because a lot of times what's going to happen is you're going to, everybody's going to want to pit together right like we see on ovals i just don't know you have to really think it through but that's my initial thinking i I think that's the only way they could have done it back then also is to have the car spread out on a road course to be able to do it and there's probably a lot of green flag type pitting to make it work i think well let me ask you this and and 
my mind is real foggy on this one, so I apologize if, my, if the facts are not 100% clear, but I seem to recall, and I don't remember what track it was. I want to say maybe Charlotte, uh, but I may be wrong on this, and, and we're going back probably, oh gosh, maybe 15 or more years, I guess. Um, wasn't there an instance, or maybe, no, it might have been Atlanta now I'm thinking about it, but anyway, wasn't there an instance where a team entered the race, but they started without a pit crew. Do you recall that? I mean, yeah. I, I, tell me about it. Do you remember the story about that? Well, I think, in all honesty, I, I think so. I think you've seen several times in the past where you've had cars that knew they were going to run maybe two, three, four laps mm -hmm. and get out and pop the hood, shake their head. It's like, wow, you know, <laughs> I mean, some starting parks and <laughs> right, right. like, you know, because they just knew they didn't, maybe have the money for a tire bill or, or they couldn't afford this. And we're talking, I'm sure it happened in the early seventies or mid seventies, uh, maybe even the early eighties too, where you just knew that they knew they weren't going to run any more than eight, 10 laps because they just didn't have the money to, to pay the tire bills or pay the engine bills. And, you know, of course, as time has gone on, NASCAR is heavily frowned on that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And now you don't, Obviously, in today's world, you don't see that. But in the past, um, yeah, you'd have cars that would run and didn't need a pit crew because they weren't going to run long enough to have a right. pit crew. Yeah, that's that's very true. I think I'm not sure about this, and I, I apologize if I'm wrong, but I think Cecil Gordon's, some of Cecil's runs were that way, and um, maybe James Hilton's were some of that way because right. they, they just couldn't afford to – you know, to stay out long enough to, to burn up tires and to mess up engines and things. Now I do know this, I mean, this is just outside the bubble a bit, but I do remember there was a time when Dave Marcus, uh, ran, I think he told me either three races or four races and the Dodges that he had in the late seventies and never took the engine out of his car. Now that didn't, I'm not saying he didn't, you know, run, but five or 10 laps. I'm saying, he ran the full races and which is very admirable uh, the, of his engine building skills because it's like, Hey, it's not broke. Don't fix it. Right. And <laughs> right, so, right, right. I mean, he did, he did some of that on the other end of the spectrum where cars were great and the engines were great. And he knew that, I mean, he won four races or five races in his career, but back in the independent days, um, he, I don't need to rebuild the motor if it's still going. I think he ran either three or four races without taking the motor out, which Jeez. is great, you know, because you got to keep in mind those independent guys had to struggle to, to make it to some of these races. And, and they knew going in that they weren't going to win races. They sort of raced among themselves, you know, the four or five or six or eight guys to see who could finish the best among themselves to finish 21st 22nd 23rd 24th that kind of thing right well yeah. ben all i can say is wow i didn't know that <laughs> exactly. i want to tell you jerry this has been a fun show really because i love looking at these trivial type things and and even going back myself i've said that to myself wow i didn't know that i mean i don't know everything but i've, I've run across some stuff that I mean, I've just said to myself, I didn't know that. That's cool. And I thought the fans listening would, would really get a kick out of doing this. And I hope we can do more of this. It's got, there's a lot of the stuff out there that 
you just think I just did not know that. Exactly. I hope, I hope everybody's enjoyed listening to this as much as we've enjoyed presenting it. Exactly. And we, we have one more thing before we cross the checkered flag oh, yeah. we do every single week. And we, you know, this is episode number 63 of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. And what we do every week is we associate a car number with the episode number. So we're going to talk about the, the car number 63. And I was shocked when I, you know, when you gave me your bit of research and I did a little bit more on my end, I was shocked that this car number, the 63 has not run in almost 30 years. Tell us a little bit about, uh, well, I mean, actually, uh, you don't have that stuff. I'm the one that has that stuff, right? The, 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 uh, the stats. So I guess I'll go through it. Um, car number 63, uh, 146 starts in the cup series, zero wins, two top fives, 15 top tens. Among the guys that drove the car that whose names are recognizable, maybe even for just one race in the number 63, were Tiny Lund, Norm Benning, Randy LaJoy, and the last start was, like I said, in 1996. So that was, what, 20, uh, 26 years ago. They had the Daytona 500. Dick Trickle, the immortal Dick Trickle, started number, started 28th, finished last in the 43-car field when his engine blew up just nine laps into the race. And that was the last time we have ever seen this number 63 on a racetrack in the NASCAR Cup Series. Yeah. Tell me, tell me, I mean, what, what are your, I mean, are you kind of surprised we have not, I mean, this, this is the first time I, I can think of in the time that I've been with you since episode 31, we've never had a, 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 a car that, you know, not only hasn't won a race, but has not been in a race for almost, you know, three decades. Yeah. It's, it's different. I mean, we, it's just funny how this works because sometimes you get numbers that are very prominent and have done well. And some that just kind of fade back into obscurity and maybe 63 is, you know, one of those numbers that, you know, the first time that, the car number ran was a, a gentleman by the name of Mike McGill. Mm -hmm. He ran it at Langhorne Speedway on se Sunday, September 14th, 1952. It was the 27th race of the 1952 NASCAR Grand National season. He started 22nd, finished 42nd. Um, it's just not a number that has really stood out big uh, in, in the Cup Series all those years. But I like the number, you know. It's, I'll cheer it on if it ever comes back. <laughs> exactly. But I, I think 63 is a cool number, but it just hasn't hasn't done all that much in the Cup Series. Exactly, exactly. Well, my friend Ben, I really appreciate this episode. I mean, this again, another one we knocked it out of the park. Another grand slam, and you know, I hope the fans, the fans and listeners, really enjoyed this. We really yeah. had a lot of fun, and oh, we really have. It's been good. Exactly. And, hope, and, you know, one of the things we love doing with this, uh, this uh, podcast, the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast is, you know, in a way we are, you know, and I mean this in with all due respect to everybody that listens and, and to, you know, Ben and myself, we're kind of like teachers in a way, because we're, you know, educating you on some of the history of NASCAR, especially for the, some of the newer fans who maybe, you know, want to know about the history of NASCAR, but they don't know, you know, a, a lot about the past. So that's why, you know, this podcast is so enjoyable to do every week with Ben and myself. And we, you know, we hope we can uh, really convey a lot of things that, you know, we, we can talk, you know, till, till uh, the cows come home, so to speak about, you know, guys like Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Cale Yarborough, you know, uh, just David Pearson. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. 
but there are just so many nuances and so many stories and you know like the you know the the theme that ben said you know wow i didn't know that it it really is true so hopefully you all enjoyed this episode of a lifetime of nascar podcast and next time uh, you talk to somebody and you uh, tell them you know, some of the things we conveyed to you I'm betting they're going to say, wow, I didn't know that either. So, all right, Ben, my friend, thank you ever so much. Any, any parting, uh, any parting thoughts at all, or uh, we'll just do this again next week then, huh? Yeah, we'll do it next week. And then uh, just thanks to everyone for listening and uh, just pass the word. we got a lot of great fun things to talk about as we go on. And, and believe me, we're, we got a lot of great stuff coming up. So just pass the word and uh, hope you enjoy listening to us. Exactly. All right, he's Ben White. I'm Jerry Bunkowski. This you've been listening to a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast, episode number sixty-three. We'll be back with episode number sixty-four next week. Have a good race weekend uh, with the races in Kansas this week, and have a great weekend overall. Stay safe, stay cool, I and mean, it's the heat wave we're going through in the middle of this week that we're taking now. It's it's getting brutal, but um, hey, the summer is right around the corner. You can't help, can't you can't beat that. So, all right, for Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Have a good one, everyone. We'll talk to you later on the Lifetime. NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mall. A Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network and is available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com for more shows. And don't forget to check out the Out of the Groove Weekly Viewer's Guide. The Weekly Viewer's Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all on GroovyMotorsports.com. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.